comforts of both home and office. The president, known as the big guy to White House staffers, the big he to interns, has his own spacious one-bedroom apartment in the plane's front section, with full bath and king-size bed. For his entourage, hot meals and drinks are served around the clock. You can lounge on posh couches and snack on fresh fruit, or watch television or first-run movies from the well-stocked library. Nothing is more special than Air Force One. Though he wasn't on board for this trip, former intimate Clinton advisor George Stephanopoulos, once a frequent flyer, observed that Bill Clinton was in his element here. On Air Force One, Stephanopoulos remarked, Clinton patrolled the halls like the captain of a cruise ship. On this final trip, the comparison was no less appropriate, but required elaboration. The president, after all, is the captain of the ship of state. The citizens are the passengers, and for eight years Bill Clinton had taken them on a relatively safe and prosperous, if tumultuous, ride. His tenure had coincided with a period of prosperity practically unequaled in American history. Unemployment was lower than it had been in a decade. The stock market had skyrocketed, at least until the last six months, and the high-tech industry had generated more jobs than it could fill. American currency was strong and stable. Inflation was under control. Most people had forgotten the misery index, the combination of high inflation and interest rates that had plagued the presidency of Jimmy Carter, the nation's last Democratic president. The nation was also at peace. The Cold War had ended before Bill Clinton took the helm, and his presidency had experienced nothing that could be called a major international crisis. Turmoil in the Balkans and Middle East was nothing new. Iraq required attention, but no massive deployment of Americans. There had been devastating, but fortunately isolated, terrorist attacks in Africa and in Oklahoma City. But the North Koreans had not invaded South Korea, nor had they lobbed one of their missiles in our direction. Communist China did not invade Taiwan. Libya remained quiet. Wars of insurgency still raged in many countries near and far, but the 60s slogan, No More Vietnams, had become a fulfilled prophecy. In the new century, the United States stood alone as the only legitimate superpower, with powerful allies in Europe and elsewhere. Objections to American dominance may have been heard in some portions of the world, but Pax Americana had made the 90s the most peaceful decade in recent memory. How much credit to accord William Jefferson Clinton for the peace and prosperity was, of course, a matter of considerable debate. But even his critics acknowledged that his actions and policies had not caused major economic or military disruptions. And no one could deny that Clinton had maintained remarkably high popularity ratings, despite seemingly perpetual scandals and personal crises that were almost exclusively of his own making. On this, his last Air Force One flight, it would have been understandable for POTUS, the President of the United States, to bask in a sense of accomplishment. But the mood was different. As the last grains of sand trickled through the hourglass of his administration, Bill Clinton, the second president to be impeached, was thinking about the miles to go before he slept, the many tasks that remained undone. 
Was there anything left he could do to pad his legacy? Great deeds to diminish memories of that irritating Monica scandal. Pardons, for example, the ultimate in unchecked and unrestrainable presidential prerogatives. In 1794, George Washington pardoned two leaders of the Whiskey Rebellion, Pennsylvanians who had risen up against the federal excise tax. After the War of 1812, James Madison pardoned the pirate Jean Lafitte. Andrew Johnson, in 1865, issued amnesty for ex-Confederates willing to take an oath of loyalty to the United States. After Filipino nationalists had lost a guerrilla war against American control of the Philippines, Theodore Roosevelt, in 1902, issued amnesty for followers of their leader, Emilio Aguinaldo. In 1974, Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon for crimes he may have committed in office. Jimmy Carter pardoned Vietnam War draft evaders and deserters. Indeed, had Clinton been less successful in escaping the draft by devious means, and had he carried out his threat not to serve in the military, he might have been the beneficiary of Jimmy Carter's 1977 blanket pardons to those who went to Canada rather than put on their nation's uniform. George Bush created a huge stir when, in 1992, he pardoned Caspar Weinberger, former Secretary of Defense, and several others tarred by the Iran-Contra scandal involving the sale of weapons to Iran and aid for anti-communist rebels in Nicaragua. Previous presidents had exercised the pardon power relatively evenly throughout their respective terms in office, with the usual bulge during the Christmas season. But Bill Clinton had granted few pardons during his early years as president. He now intended to make up for lost time. The journalists on board Air Force One received a hint of what was to come. On the way to Arkansas, the president strode into the press section and said with a laugh, You got anybody you want a pardon? Any candidates that might have surfaced from that peculiar, yet uniquely Clinton-esque invitation would, as it turned out, have had to stand in a very long queue. I've got 400 to 500 requests for commutations and pardons, Clinton had said three days earlier, on January 15th, when the Clintons closed the deal on their new house in Washington, in response to a suggestion by one of the real estate people to relax and enjoy his last few days in office. Relaxation was not then on Bill Clinton's radar screen. Aside from the fact that Bill Clinton's idea of relaxation was likely to induce fierce countermeasures from a spouse who was on the alert for that sort of thing, the soon-to-be ex-president had turned his attention to clemency as one of the last remaining opportunities to set new presidential records. And there was an ample supply of crooks, drug dealers, and other sleazy characters in and out of prison on which his beneficence would not be wasted. Air Force One landed in Little Rock, where Bill Clinton had once held forth as governor. In a speech before the Arkansas legislature, he indulged in some characteristic public hand-wringing over his last-minute presidential duties. "'We're still getting applications in the mail.' Mr. Clinton gleefully confided to the perplexed legislators. It's crazy. Clinton basked in the applause from the home folks. 
Afterwards, several Arkansan cronies and other supplicants took the president aside and added more candidates to the pardon list. Then it was back to Air Force One for the return flight to the White House and an orgy of emotional presidential excess. For days, Clinton had been putting in a schedule worthy of Stakhanov, the legendary worker of Soviet propaganda, laboring nearly around the clock, bidding repeated emotional and self-indulgent goodbyes to staff, attending ceremony after ceremony whenever he was asked. Between tearful and self-congratulatory farewells and affectionate hugging, he wolfed down food, giving onlookers a chance to verify the observation of one former classmate who said that anyone who thinks this guy never inhaled never saw him around a pizza. On January 18th, Flotus, the First Lady of the United States, Hillary Rodham Clinton, showed up at a West Wing ceremony in the Indian Treaty Room to celebrate the administration's accomplishments in health care, ignoring the fact that it had been her most profound and memorable public failure. Bill Clinton duly put in an appearance, which took away from the task of preparing for his farewell address. Later that night, he gave it over national television. He spoke of fiscal responsibility, American global leadership, and the need to treat all Americans with dignity and fairness. Doing something of a George Washington, he concluded, My days in this office are nearly through, but my days of service, I hope, are not. In the years ahead, I will never hold a position higher nor a covenant more sacred than that of President of the United States. But there is no title I will wear more proudly than that of citizen. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless America. But there remained much to do, and the President seemed determined.